Take your Bible this morning and look with me in Mark chapter 13. Steve uh, brought a message from Mark 13 last week, and uh, I decided that I will continue that text. As he said, it's not an easy text, as are not most of the prophetic, what we call apocalyptic passages of Scripture. There's a little bit of mystery to them, and you can't resolve everything in them, but I will do my best over the next few weeks to work through the rest of Mark chapter 13. Uh, this morning, I'm interested in uh, sort of the center portion, and I'm going to talk about living through tribulation and the example that God gives us in history of how he encouraged his people in the first century to live through tribulation. As I begin with Mark 13, let me first give my outline of the chapter so you can see where we are in the text uh, this morning. Steve uh, showed us the introduction last week in verses 1 through 4. In the introduction, we have the original questions and the occasion for the discourse. And the questions were these. When will these things happen? And what will be the signs? That's verses 1 through 4, the original questions and the occasion. Last week, Steve dealt primarily with verses 5 through 13. What I call, and he discussed as, general tribulations that lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem and which characterize the time until the end. They continue to the end. So verses 5 through 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will take place in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem but he's also indicating that these are the kinds of things that happen throughout this age in which we live. That's verses 5 through 13. This morning, I look at verses 14 through 23. And this is what I call specific tribulations associated with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These tribulations signal that the end has arrived, and you and I are living in the end. So verses 14 through 23 are specific tribulations associated with the destruction of Jerusalem, and which signal that the end has arrived. Next week, I'll look at verses 24 to 27. The end of the end, the final end, the consummation, when Jesus Christ returns. And then the end of the chapter will probably take a couple of messages, but Jesus returns to the original questions. And he first answers the second one, are there definite signs? And then he'll answer the first question, when will it all happen? So that's how I understand the layout of Mark chapter 13. And this morning we're looking at verses 14 through 23, specific tribulations associated with the destruction of Jerusalem 
and which signal that the end has arrived. Listen to our text this morning. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter the house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I remind you that these words are written to first century followers of Christ who are living prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and many of whom would actually live through that destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. These verses focus on a specific instance of intense tribulation in the destruction of Jerusalem. Our text tells us that what happened in AD 70 was unique in the history of the world. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Why was the destruction of Jerusalem so unique in history? Let me suggest a couple of answers uh, to that. And by the way, this is introduction. I will get to uh, the message, the heart of the message in a few moments. But why was this AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem unparalleled in history? I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, it happened to a nation that had been chosen of God to be his people. It happened to Israel, God's chosen people. One commentator, Lenski, put it this way. He says, no nation had ever piled up a guilt such as that of the Jews who were chosen of God infinitely blessed, and yet crucified God's Son and trampled upon all of his further grace. No judgment had ever and can ever be so severe in the history of the world. No judgment can be compared with that which wiped out the Jews as a nation. That time in history was unique because of the people to whom it happened, the Jewish nation. 
It also, secondly, happened in a place which was unique, uniquely chosen of God as the place where he would put his presence in Jerusalem, in the temple, where he would put his name. No other piece of geography on earth compared historically to Jerusalem. Thirdly, it happened in a way that many will argue was unparalleled in its suffering that took place. One author, as he read through ancient historians like Josephus and Tacitus and Milmart and Merivale, all who wrote histories of either the Jews or histories of the Romans, he summarizes what took place in this way. He said the horrors of war and sedition, of famine and pestilence were such as exceeded all attempts of conception, that you cannot imagine what took place there. The city was densely crowded with multitudes which had come up for the Passover. Pestilence followed, famine followed. The commonest instincts of humanity were forgotten. Acts of violence, of cruelty, were perpetrated without compunction or remorse and barbarities enacted which cannot be described. Mothers snatched the food from the mouths of their husbands and of their children and some actually killed and roasted and devoured their infants. Dead bodies filled the houses and streets of the city while cruel assassins uh, rifled and wrangled with the exultation of fiends. The besieged devoured even the filth of the streets and, and, excess, and so excessive was the stench that it was necessary to hurl 600,000 corpses over the city walls. 97,000 captives were taken during the war and more than 1,100,000 perished in the siege. It was a horrible time happening to a nation that God had chosen in a place which God had chosen to place his name. Another historian says other sieges may have witnessed before and since scenes of physical wretchedness equally appalling, but nothing that history records offers anything parallel to the alternations of fanatic hope that the Jews had and frenzied despair that attended the breaking up of the faith and of the polity of Israel. Edersheim, the Christian, Jewish Christian historian, said that if divine mercy had not interposed for the sake of the followers of Christ, the whole Jewish race that inhabited that land would have been swept away. It was an unparalleled time of suffering. And then fourth, 
excuse me, fourthly, I say it is unique. It was unique because it can never be repeated again because the church is now God's chosen people. The church made of Jew and Gentile comprise the elect of God and the church will never ever suffer the devastating and destroying wrath of God. We may suffer in the wrath that God pours out on evil, but the church will never suffer the wrath of God because as Thessalonians says, God has not appointed us to wrath. Or as it says in chapter 1 and verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, we are delivered from the coming wrath of God. The followers of Christ who lived during the destruction of Jerusalem suffered. Yes, they suffered as a consequence of the wrath that God was pouring on that city. But they did not suffer the wrath of God. The suffering they had was a merciful suffering under the merciful hand of a loving father. The destruction of the Jewish temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman army had great significance for both religious Jews and the followers of Jesus Christ. For religious Jews, God was emphasizing in a very dramatic and powerful way that the end of old covenant institutions has taken place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the end of the old covenant. The temple is done. Jerusalem is done. It had significance for the religious followers, Jewish followers, Jewish believers. But it also had significance for the followers of Jesus Christ. Because God was calling them to believe the words of Jesus Christ. Because some of Jesus' last words were, In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And as these Roman invaders came in, and as the Jewish assassins within the city were killing their own brothers, as all of this devastation was taking place, God's people were called to hold to the words of Jesus Christ. You will suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. As I look at what, is, what happened in AD 70 and the words that Jesus gave to his disciples to prepare them to go through that, I find a very vivid and powerful example of how God graciously empowers and sustains his church during times of great tribulation. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few moments this morning, is how God sustains and empowers his church. What do we learn from the words that Jesus gave to his disciples as he describes the coming devastation that they will go through? What do we learn from that? First of all, we learn this, 
In tribulation, God reminds us of the value, the supreme value of life, especially life in Jesus Christ. I find the words of Jesus uh, intriguing, interesting in a number of ways. That when all of this is happening, when the Roman invaders are coming from the outside, when the Jewish assassins on the inside are, are mutilating and destroying their own brothers in the precinct of the temple, that God would have to say, run for your life, Jesus says. Don't go back and get anything. You don't need your gold watch. You don't need your wedding rings. You don't need to try to carry your safe out of your house. Just run for your life. Now, it seems like common sense, doesn't it? But sin distorts our thinking. We often value property more than we value the life that we have in Jesus Christ. We often find our joy, our comfort, our security, our peace, our happiness in stuff that we have deemed to be important to us more than we do the life that is in Jesus Christ. When I read the parallel text of this uh, Olivet Discourse, you find it in Luke and you find it in Matthew also. You do not find it in John. John does not discuss uh, this uh, apocalyptic passage of Scripture. But when I read the parallel accounts, which also talk about what Mark calls this abomination of desolation, this desecration of the holy city, and this desecration of the holy place, the temple, uh, I'm reminded that Daniel the prophet spoke about that coming. Some would say in B.C., 165 B.C., uh, when Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the temple of the Jews, that that was a, a initial fulfillment of what Daniel called that abomination of desolation. But here Jesus says it's going to happen in their near, near future. Now, what it was could be a couple of things. It could be the Jewish assassins who were destroying their own brothers and sisters, defiling, desolating the city and the temple by killing their brothers and sisters. Or it could be the Roman soldiers as they came in with their huge shields, all of which were inscribed with the idols that they worshipped and the idols that they believed would, would give them victory. And they marched into the city with this idolatry and they marched into the temple with this idolatry, desolating the abomination of desolation. 
Jesus said, when you see this happening, run for your life and leave your possessions behind. Value your life more than you value your property. And especially how difficult it will be, he said, for pregnant women and for nursing mothers, more difficult for them because they not only have to protect their life, they have to protect the life of another, an unborn life, a born life. In tribulation, God reminds us of the value of life over property. Peace, prosperity often create a climate for Christians to misplace their value and exchange the joy of their creator, the joy of their redeemer, for the joy of the things that he has created, the things that he has allowed them to have. For myself, I know my values are misplaced when the loss of temporal, temporal comfort of life overwhelms the joy of the eternal presence of Christ. And I can say I've experienced that and I've had to repent of that. When the value, my values are misplaced when the loss of the temporal comforts of life overwhelm the joy of the life that I have in Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not teaching any kind of asceticism or monasticism as some higher type of spirituality or poverty or any of that as, as, as the way to go in life. The truth is, I prefer the comforts of life. If I have a choice, I enjoy a hot tub, a swimming pool. I was in one yesterday. It was refreshing. I enjoy a shade tree, a good meal, a fine wine, and a beautiful sunset. I appreciate and enjoy the, thing, the, the good things of life. But again, my values are misplaced when the loss of the temporal comfort of life overwhelm and take away the joy of the eternal presence of Christ. Many of us prefer what J.I. Packer called years ago and wrote a book on it. He called it hot tub Christianity. Now once a year, my brothers and sons and we, 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 we try to take a motorcycle trip together for a week. And we always rent a house somewhere. And one of the criterion for renting a house is it must have a hot tub. Because after riding 250 to 400 miles in the hot sun or in the rain sometimes, you like to come back at night and just sit in a hot tub. So J.I. Packer wrote a book called Hot Tub Christianity. And this is what he said. The, the symptoms of hot tub religion include 
what he calls, what he says is a skyrocketing divorce and remarriage among Christians, widespread indulgence in sexual aberrations, overheated supernaturalism that seeks signs and wonders and visions and prophecies and miracles, constantly, constant soothing syrup from electronic preachers and liberal pulpits and intellectual sentimentalism and emotional highs Deliberately cultivated, make me feel good. He says it's the Christian equivalent of cannabis and cocaine. I want to feel good, Christianity. He says these are not healthy trends. They make the church look like the world, driven by the same unreasoning desire for pleasure, seasoned with magic. Thus they undermine the credibility of the gospel and the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Tribulation, when it strips all of that away, reminds us that what is really important is life, and especially life in Jesus Christ. That's why John says, don't love the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He says it's all passing away. But the one who does the will of God, he abides forever. Value life over property. Secondly, our text encourages those in the first century and those of us who live in the first century that in tribulation, God determines that nothing will thwart his purpose of saving some. Nothing will stop, will hinder God's purpose of saving some. Listen to our text again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days. No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. No human being would be saved. Well, in context of what Jesus is talking about, the context of the destruction of, of uh, Jerusalem in A.D. 70, there were Jews and Christians living in Judea and living in Jerusalem during this time of Roman invasion. And apart from God's intervention, the Romans would have wiped out the entire population of Jerusalem and Judea. No one would have been saved unless God had said, I'm in control of the troubles that touch this world and they have a limit and I determine that limit. He shortens the day, telling us that God is in complete control of not only the tribulation of A.D. 70, but the tribulations of 
A.D. 20, 21 and 20 and 21, the tribulations that will be in the future, God is in control. This week I read through Revelation, and as I read through Revelation 4 through 16 and see the, the seals open and the trumpets blown and the, and the bowls poured out and all of this, this judgment touching the earth. If I didn't understand anything else about it, I understood that God is in control of all of it. He controls the limits of tribulation for the sake of his elect. Now, some would say that what he's talking about there is the miraculous preservation of the Jewish nation because in the future, God has a certain plan yet for the Jewish nation. But I doubt very strongly that that, what, that that is what Jesus was talking about. The New Testament clearly teaches that the old covenant is done away with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the new covenant is established in his death and resurrection. And that the new covenant incorporates both Jew and Gentile who alone... No ethnic people have special status with God. Only those in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are elect, have special status with God. So then when Jesus says God shortens those days for the sake of the elect, he's meaning, he means perhaps two things. One, he means the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles who had gotten saved since the preaching of Peter on Pentecost. All the way up to A.D. 70, that, that onward movement of the gospel that brought many to Christ, Jew and Gentiles who were in Jerusalem, who were in Judea, for their sake, God shortens the days. But secondly, he could just as well mean the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles who were living at that time, who were yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. God was going to save some of those unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles who suffered that destruction, but who were spared because God was going to save them. We should be comforted and encouraged that even during the greatest times of human suffering, that great time of suffering in Judea and Jerusalem, God is still determined to save some through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no pandemic, no outbreak, no war, no famine, no uprising that is not under God's sovereign control and in which he is still accomplishing the salvation of some 
through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's saving purposes are unchanged and not thwarted by any of the cataclysmic events of this world. As believers, we should be asking in time of pandemic, what is God doing? And the answer doesn't change. At least one of the answers is always true. Acts 15 tells us that God in this age in which we live after the resurrection of Christ, God is calling out of the nations a people for his name. And nothing changes that. War, famine, pandemic, uprising, riot. God is still calling out of the nations a people for his name. Today, God's elect are those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. When God called Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, he told them, you're, you're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. But AD 70 marks very vividly that that's the end. God is through with those old covenant institutions. And instead, Peter writes to believers, Jewish believers and, and Gentile believers. And he says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are the elect. And you can be sure when trouble comes, when suffering comes, that God is mercifully looking on his people and controlling what touches them and how, how it touches them and when and for how long. God's purposes are never thwarted. But thirdly, we learn from Jesus' words to those first century believers that in tribulation, God calls us to keep looking to Jesus Christ, to the, to the Christ of Scripture. Keep looking to the true Christ. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead people, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In time of tribulation, you will be tempted. In the midst of your suffering, the trust that God still loves you, that God is in control, that God can take you through this. Even if you die, you will be tempted to look to other saviors. But Jesus reminds those first century believers that our refuge, our only saving refuge in time of trouble is Jesus Christ. There is no other Christ. There is no other Messiah. 
It's what we confess every week. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. This is the Jesus who saves you from hell, saves you from the eternal wrath of God, and sustains you in the midst of troubles in life. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We all know that today there are many Christs, and perhaps the most popular Christ of today is the Christ of the prosperity gospel But if you believe in that Christ, you should know he cannot save you from your sin and he cannot save you in time of trouble. The prosperity Christ is not the Christ of the Bible and he cannot save you in time of tribulation. Whether it's the prosperity Christ of Joel Osteen or the prosperity Christ of David Oyedepo of Nigeria, or the prosperity Christ of Liberia's, what they call the Never Die Church, or the prosperity Christ of much of Cameroonian Pentecostalism. At its extreme, you have pastors like the one who told his female parishioners That in order to have the blessing of God on your life, you must sleep with him. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is not the Christ of the Bible. Or the prosperity Christ of much of Latin America and the Caribbean which make promises but do not talk about the Christ who died and rose again for your sin. When I think of who is Jesus Christ, this is my answer. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second Adam, the creator of the world, the one who fulfills the obedience required by the law, and who suffers the curse of the law for us. He is the sinless covenant keeper, the quintessential seed of Abraham, the legitimate heir to the Davidic throne. He is the Messiah, the Lord of the church, the final judge of the world. He is the one who gave his life in payment for sin, to redeem sinners and to restore them to God's original and eternal purpose. He is the one who rose from the dead and is coming again. And he is the one who saves you in time of trouble. And lastly, in closing, in tribulation, 
God calls us to watchfulness. But be on guard, Jesus says to his disciples. I've told you all of this ahead of time. Be on guard. It's a word that Mark uses five times in Mark chapter 13. It's a word that describes either one who is constantly watching or is one who is told to keep on watching. Jesus is telling his disciples to live your life for Christ, but live your life with eyes wide open, knowing that the world you live in will be full of trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Don't be surprised at the trials and tribulations of life, but be confident that your sovereign God is working all things for his glory. AD 70 was a real event that took place, a hard time of devastation and destruction. And in some sense, a sign. A sign that God is through with the old covenant institutions and a sign that the end of the world is here in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that from there on, we live in a world that is marked by suffering and trouble and tribulation. And even though you may not be experiencing it now, somewhere in the world today, there are people dying because they are believers. There are those who are in tribulation today. As I read through the book of Revelation, I was struck by a number of passages. One was one I thought, will I ever, will I be a part of that particular congregation? Listen to what happens in the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You may join that choir someday. It could be in your lifetime. As I said, there are some in our world today who are entering that choir of those who have been martyred for their faith. But whether I join that particular one or not, I know I will be at this one. John says, I looked and, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You will be there. If you were in Christ, regardless of what you may endure on this earth. So when tribulation comes, and it will, always remember the value of life in Christ over property. That nothing will thwart God's purpose of saving some. That we must keep looking to the Christ of Scripture and that God calls us to watchfulness. Let's pray together, shall we? Before I pray, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, it may be that there's someone here or someone listening or watching this morning that will suffer something worse than the destruction of Jerusalem. I imagine if I was one of those unbelieving Jews or Gentiles that escaped the assassins and escaped the Roman invaders and heard the gracious offer of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, I would run to Jesus because worse than the destruction of Jerusalem is eternal hellfire. And if you've never come to Christ, then do it today. Do it before it's too late. Right where you sit, right where you are, anywhere in the world this morning. Tell God, I repent of my sin. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. And today, I surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and escape the wrath of God. And as a believer, keep looking to Jesus Christ. There is none other. Father, Thank you for the great salvation and for your presence and for your promise that your children will never suffer your devastating and destroying wrath. We thank you that Jesus stood in our place and bore the wrath that we deserve so that we could be called your elect, your sons, and your daughters. May some, may many come to you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.